Welcome to the Heathen History Podcast, your favorite podcast where we give you all the tea on the history of heathenry. Ben, do you even know what that means? No, I, I don't. Okay, so the tea comes originally from the gay culture. Okay. And it means the tea, the truth. You, you sit down and you sip tea and you gossip. Oh, I see. But we don't have any tea. No, we will spill the sonic. Oh, okay. So I guess that'll have to do. So, yeah, we're going to be talking today about the Odinic Rite, mm-hmm. not to be confused with the other Odinic Rite. Well, the other Odinic Rite is now not the Odinic Rite, so only the right Odinic Rite is right. And the Odinic Left. Uh, is there an Odinic Left? There should be. Like, it just would make sense. I mean, I'm of the opinion anything that, I, that you speak eventually comes into existence. Okay. At least on the internet. All right. Well, pretty much everybody we're going to be talking about today is decidedly on the Odinic Right, not the Odinic Left. That is true. And uh, the Odinic Rite is what the, I would say, is the oldest of the British heathen Odinic Rite organizations. Right. There were a couple earlier than that that we don't know much about. And of course, as you can learn from the first podcast that we did, there was a brief British attempt in the 1930s. Yeah. Oh, Ben, you're talking about A. Rudd Mills. Yes, I was talking about A. Rudd Mills. He tried to start an Odinist organization in Britain in the 1930s now, before going back to Australia. Australia. And was more successful in Australia. But right. We're, we're talking about really kind of the, I would say, the oldest still existing right. British uh Heathen or Odinist. It's hard to come up with like a really good broad because heathen and Odinist don't really necessarily umbrella anymore, but we'll just say Norse oriented. Right. And be it said, it's an international organization now. There is the Odinic Rite Vinland. I'm not sure if it's still a going concern. There, at least at one time, was the Odinic Rite France. Uh, There's certainly the Odinic Rite Australia. Now, isn't that a separate organization? Techni- but they're in fellowship? Yeah, technically it has separate origins, but they're in, for lack of a better word, full communion with the Odinic Rite. All right. So let's talk a bit about uh, the foundation. We have John Yule is probably going to be, and you remember we briefly talked about him in our first Steve McNallan Mm-hmm. Uh, episode because he was supposed to perform McDowell's wedding. Right, right. He was scheduled to perform Steve McDowell's first wedding to Linda, and uh, that didn't happen. I'm not sure why. But he was born in London in uh, Hackney on April 10th, 1918. That doesn't mean he was born in a cab, right? No. As okay. far as I've actually got a, um, a a picture of his house right here. And it looks like a perfectly ordinary house. He was not born in a cab, as far as I can tell. Okay, just checking. All right. His father had, unfortunately, uh, been killed in World War One, so he grew up without uh, without a father. And it's mentioned in his biography that he briefly joined the Boy Scouts, but spent a little more time in an offshoot of the scouting movement or a parallel movement called the Kibbo Kift. And the Kibbo Kift started at about the same time that the Boy Scouts did, and both were influenced by an American writer named Ernest Thompson Seton. Seton knew Native American culture 
and Seton's original group, the Woodcraft Indians, did a lot of Native American-style crafts like building teepees and shooting arrows and things like that. Seton got together with Robert Baden-Powell and founded the Boy Scout movement, but Baden-Powell was more military-minded. He didn't want to create good little Native Americans. He wanted to create scouts for the army. Right. So the militaristic part of the scouts comes from him, and then the quasi-native stuff that the scouts do is Ernest Thompson Seton. And Seton had inspired uh, some folks in Britain, uh, notably the founder of the Kibbokift, a man named John Hargrave, uh, to do this similar scouting-like movement, but no militarism and more back-to-the-land and woodcraft and traditional crafts and sometimes verging pretty darn close to paganism, borrowing some Native American prayers to the sun and the earth and things like that. I think the Kibbo Kift is the organization that met at Hargrave's country estate, which has the unfortunate name of Sandy Balls. That could be a different organization. I'm not quite sure. Well, isn't that the? Uh, isn't that also the the same organization or a similar organization that Gerald Gardner was involved with? I don't remember off the bat if it was the Kibbo Kift, but I know that they yeah. were at Sandy Balls. Yeah, one of the. <laughs> so. uh, all right, yeah, Gerald Gardner, Sandy Ball. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm not making a joke. All right. I'm serious. Well, if he's going skyclad all the time, couldn't he just brush him off? Never mind. I'm just, I'm serious because I made the joke last time about the guys I used to work with at the equity mm-hmm. theater or the non-equity theater. So this, I understand though. I get that. I mean, they, he's not wanting, you know, you've got very much conflicting ethos because at that time, just, just based on his date of birth being, you know, that late 1910s, he would have hit that time around the same time that you started seeing kind of that 1930s naturalist movements and back to the land movements that were spurned on by mm-hmm. the Great Depression. Right. So that makes complete and total sense that you would kind of, you would see one group that was kind of a post-war mm-hmm. build a, a model, you know, soldier and one group that was much more following this kind of natural right. event. And even before the Great Depression, you got that in the aftermath of the Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. there was this counter movement that wanted to get back to the land and the countryside and the traditions of the country folk who were still in touch with the essence of the nation. And we'll see how that played out in Germany in a very similar way, a very interesting way. Anyway, at the age of 15 in 1933, uh, Ewell joined a group called the British Union of Fascists. You know, once again, I want to commend them on their name Mm -hmm. because British Union of Fascists tells you exactly what they are. Mm -hmm. No guesswork, no obfuscating. It's just straight up, hey, dude, we're British, we're fascist. Right. Nobody really knows who the what Kibbo Kift is supposed to mean, right. but British Union of Fascists is right out there. If you'd said Kibbo Kift, I would have guessed it was a Futurama character. Ah, right. Or I, I would have guessed like a, a brand of dog food. Anyway, the British Union of Fascists had been founded by Oswald Mosley. He had been a conservative member of the British Parliament and was noted for great speaking skills. He was said to be one of the best public speakers in Britain, uh, very charismatic. I had trained to be a pilot in World War I, but after a training accident, walked with a limp 
for the rest of his days, which I guess gave him a kind of dashing, wounded hero sort of magnetism. And he'd been conservative, but he'd crossed the aisle and switched over to the Labor Party, which is the far left, and then gone from there to an even farther left party called the Independent Labor Party, and had some proposals for trying to cope with Britain's entrance into the Great Depression uh, that weren't necessarily bad ideas. He was proposing a combination of high tariffs and high government spending to employ people. Uh, He was proposing a version of Keynesian economics. Or something similar to what we did in the U.S. with the – various work programs like the Civilian Conservation Corps. Right. He was also proposing, though, nationalization of some industries, and that was a bridge too far for some. Uh, He tried to found a political party uh, called the New Party, but they didn't get any seats in Parliament. And in 1932, uh, he founded the British Union of Fascists. I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Like, that makes my head hurt a little bit. I'm going to go from... Like Jeb Bush to, I don't know, Joe Biden to Bernie Sanders and then David Duke. Right. Well, I've been coming to think as I've been researching this that fascism doesn't neatly fit on what we think of as the left and the right axes. But then how can you go from being super far, being like, I don't know, Jeb Bush to Joe Biden to Bernie Sanders and then to David Duke? That doesn't make any sense. Coming to see fascism as not something that fits neatly on the left-right spectrum. You can have leftist fascism and right-wing fascism. I'm coming to see fascism as more of a flavor that you can add to a wide variety of political positions. It's kind of like pumpkin spice. Uh, yeah, I saw. I found pumpkin spice dog biscuits. Yes, Sweet. because of course. Yes. Yes. So fascism is more about There was a time when this country was great. And we need to make Britain great again? Oddly enough, one of Mosley's mottos was Britain first. Of course it was. Yes, funny how these things pop up. So you have this national mythology that there was a time when this country was great. And it lost that greatness because of the action of some outside enemy. They may be living inside the country, but they'll never truly be part of it. They are simultaneously so contemptible and weak that it will be easy to destroy them completely. And at the same time, they wield incredible power and have brainwashed everybody, much like what you would get the uh, hear about the Jews in Nazi Germany. So basically, Schrodinger's Jews, they're both super powerful and completely weak at the same time. Right, right. Schrodinger's Jews. Exactly. And what you need is a strong leader who will lead the nation back to greatness and the leader that embodies the will of the people, not necessarily the will of individual persons who might have all sorts of things that they would prefer but the will of this sort of abstract nation for which everyone is expected to give their lives if necessary and which has to progress through a process of constant struggle, always trying to fight for a brighter world uh, that will rise someday. Right. To my hope belongs to me. You know, cabaret. Yes. And so this – and of course the the BUF – 
was had their paramilitary wing, which was the Black Shirts, which I actually just finished reading a novel where the Black Shirts were part of the plot. They really turned up the hostilities towards the Jews, towards communists. And if you were a Jewish communist, you probably were double in trouble. And Ewell was a uh, Ewell was a black shirt. He joined the branch of the British Union of Fascists in the London neighborhood of Mayfair and participated in a um, labor action. It was actually in favor of the workers at a gravel works at a place called Ham River. And uh, he and his friends dropped sugar into the gas tanks of the scabs. You know, the British Union of Fascists was pro-labor. And for a time, he actually lived in BUF headquarters. Uh, Mosley was an aristocrat. He was quite well off, and he used a lot of his personal fortune uh, to keep the BUF going. Uh, So for a couple of years, uh, Ewell was on salary and was paid to be one of his guards. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, that ended in 1935 when Mosley could no longer provide lodgings for his supporters, and he seems to have dropped out of the BUF. Now, the BUF went on, continued to grow until finally it was ended in 1940. Uh, The group was broken up. Mosley was interned for a couple of years because it's not a good look to have the Union of Fascists marching through the streets. When uh, you're fighting the Nazis. When the Germans are trying to bomb you. Yeah. Yeah, not a good look. No. In uh, October 1936, uh, the BUF marched through a Jewish neighborhood in East London, and that sparked a rather violent reaction. Opponents of the BUF brawled with the BUF and also fought the police who were trying to clear room for them and let the march proceed. Uh, It's still known as the Battle of Cable Street. And that's kind of terrifying. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, so... He so Yule leaves that and right. He goes on a walking tour across Britain. Uh, he seems to have briefly served in Spain uh, with a group called the Irish Brigade. Uh, Spain was fighting the Civil War. This is the time that you have you know the anarchists and the communists and the left in general, including the Abraham Lincoln Brigade from America, uh, fighting the nationalist side uh, led by General Francisco Franco. And an Irish leader who was quasi-fascist named Ewan O'Duffy had founded this group called the Irish Brigade, and they went over to fight on Franco's side. Apparently, Ewell went with them, and he may still have been Catholic at the time uh, because the Irish Brigade was raised as this group that was going to defend traditional Catholicism which was under attack by all of these leftists. Right. And it it would make sense to me that even if he was not Catholic mm-hmm. devoutly, he still could have been like many people who are Catholic and identify culturally as Catholic. I was raised Catholic. This is a strong mm-hmm. part of my identity, even mm-hmm. if I'm not a devout Catholic. Right. And the, bear in mind, too, he's still a teenager. And some of this just could have been for kicks. I don't really know what his motivation was. Yeah. Uh, turned out that the Irish Brigade accomplished pretty much nothing. They were not disciplined. They were militarily completely ineffective and rapidly grew completely disillusioned with the cause. 
and they left in 1937 without really accomplishing anything. Uh, UNO Duffy would go on to found an Irish fascist organization uh, called the Green Shirts because, you know, if you're going to be a fascist, you have to have a shirt. Color? Yeah, you have to have your own specific shirt color. We've got black shirts, brown shirts, green shirts. In America, it was the Silver Shirts, this group led by a guy named William Dudley Pelly. No one ever goes for like the really fun colors like magenta shirts or, I don't know, fuchsia. <laughs> that would be much more fun. Okay. What so about the Paisley Shirts or the, um, I don't know, the, the Dress Tartan Shirts? The Seersucker Shirts. Oh, That's there we the go. Southern ones. Ah, yes. So after all this, Yule goes and joined the uh, Foreign Legion, which sounds kind of awesome. Pretty much for the heck of it. He was interviewed for a book called Inside the Foreign Legion, and he talked about applying and getting accepted and shipping down to the French Foreign Legion's training base in Algeria at a place called Sidi Bel Abbes, and doesn't really explain why he did it. And he comes across as being, oh, well, you know, I sounded like fun, you know, I was what already, the heck? I was already in France. Why right. not? You know, I he's mean, already been a black shirt and an Irish brigadesman. Why not the Foreign Legion? Well, you know, you're there. You, I, I can imagine the end of this campaign, he's in France. Mm -hmm. They're broke. There may not be a way home. Mm -hmm. This may be the best option he had was join the Foreign Legion. Right. And he does. And did and trained in Algeria. And unfortunately, in 1939, war broke out. Uh, Germany invaded Poland. Britain uh, declared war on Nazi Germany. Uh, France joined Britain. The Nazis invaded Norway. Norway would have been a source of very valuable uh, resources yes. for them, ores and things like that. And Norway didn't have much ability to resist. Although the Norwegian royal family did manage to get out in time, and they set up a government in exile in London. And Ewell's half-brigade of Legion troops joined British troops and also Polish troops. Poland had been overrun and was divided between Germany and the Soviets, but a lot of the Polish army and especially the Air Force managed to escape. In fact, Poland's army was the fourth largest on the Allied side. Mm-hmm. And Polish pilots uh, were some of the best in the air during the Battle of Britain. So British troops, Polish troops, and the French Foreign Legion attacked uh, Norway, uh, attacked the town of Narvik, and Ewell took part. And be it said, uh, we talk about half-jokingly, half-seriously about the importance of punching Nazis. Uh, Ewell killed them. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what his personal politics were like at this time, but he followed orders. He did his duty, and he shot Nazis before they could shoot him. Well, and then he, you know, he did that, and he also, you know, he did that. He worked. He was part of the Allied side, which is, you know. Mm -hmm. I, but if you think about if he was a member of the British Union – now, this is me totally speculating, guys. Lauren, as I'm apt to do on this show – if he was, let's say, if he was a true believer in the BUF, mm -hmm. Britain first, then it would only make sense to me that he would fight against Britain's enemies. Mm -hmm. And if the Nazis are Britain's enemies, then that's the side he's going to choose ideologically or not. Mm -hmm. That that makes sense to me. All right. And unfortunately, uh, they couldn't hold Narvik. 
No. And France had to withdraw because Germany occupied France. And the Foreign Legion was summoned uh, back to France. I suppose they fought on the side of the uh, collaborationist Vichy government of, of France. Uh, but Ewell left the Foreign Legion, uh, joined the British Army, and served in a theater of war that we don't hear a lot about. Japan had invaded Southeast Asia. They mm -hmm. wanted to make it part of what they called their Greater East Asian Co-Prosperity Sphere. And they had strong-armed Thailand into signing up with them. And from there, they were pushing into Burma, right, which is now Myanmar, and were threatening India. And they'd actually made contact with some Indian nationalists uh, that wanted independence from, from Britain. And Ewell joined the 77th Indian Infantry, and that group was called the Chindits, because what they did was these commando-style raids deep behind Japanese lines. They would move into Japanese-occupied territory, and of course, this is all jungle, and establish these secret bases from which they could strike uh, to cut off supply lines and blow up railroads and generally cause havoc in the enemy's rear. So general, like what we would refer to now as guerrilla warfare. Yeah, guerrilla warfare, special forces. Mm -hmm. There's debate as to how much good the Chindits actually managed to accomplish, uh, but there's no denying that they fought hard in some of the nastiest uh, fighting in the war, it being jungle Everybody got sick. Everyone had dysentery. I watched Naked and Afraid. I know how this goes. Okay. Well, it was basically like that with with several hundred several hundred men. With people also shooting at you. With people shooting at you. They did have planes coming in to redrop supplies, but it was still It's that's hard to do in the jungle. Yeah. It was still jungle warfare yes. and not fun. So no doubt about Ewell's personal courage. So after the war, we're not sure what happened. He either went back to the Foreign Legion or he got a job with the Ministry of Agriculture in Britain. There's kind mm -hmm. of conflicting information there. Right. I also came across a source that said he took a job with the BBC. On the BBC. Right. Yeah. Stubba. Well, that was his name in the uh, uh, in the Odinic Rite. That was his heathen name. Right, Stuba. There's a biography of him in a book called This is Odinism uh, that was put out by the Odinic Rite Australia. And the Odinic Rite of Australia writer of it, Osrid, speculates that he might have joined the Foreign Legion again and fought in French Indochina, otherwise known as Vietnam which broke away from French colonial right. rule and then promptly fell apart into fighting between nationalist and communist factions. And the French said, we've got a problem. Hey, United States, help us out here. And you know the rest. So let, now we're going to get into the part where we start getting into the actual Odinism. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, meets, he meets up and joins up with John Gibbs Bailey, who has a very a much more vague background. Like we don't know nearly as much about him as we do about John Yule. Mm -hmm. um, he had been a part of some small Odinist groups in the 30s. Maybe had been involved in some right wing groups, but yeah, he might have been maybe. in the he might have been in the British Union of Fascists himself, but nobody seems to know. Um, he may have been in Red Mills's London group that he was briefly around. Right. Well, people have speculated he might have had contact with Rudd Mills. 
But John Ewell later said uh, that no, uh, he actually was not. Instead, he'd mentioned that Gibbs Bailey had known people who believed in this very odd book that came out in 1930 uh, by a man named Lawrence Waddle called The British Edda. And the British Edda was supposedly the original version of the Icelandic Edda that the Icelanders had been keeping, but originally it had been a British document that described the founding of civilization in the Garden of Eden by the god El, which is the yeah. one of the Hebrew words for the Judeo-Christian yeah. god, and Woden, and Loki. Yes. And apparently the first man was Thor, uh, who was also known as Herr Thor. Or, oddly enough, Arthur. Arthur, who married Eve, otherwise known as Ever. Or Gwenever. Gwen Ever. Yes. And they and Arthur and Gwen Ever had been married in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, this is weird. This is pretty bleeping weird. Yeah. This kind of cut and paste mishmash of biblical and Sumerian and Arthurian and Norse mythology. And apparently John Gibbs Bailey had known some people that were fascinated by by this book and some other people, but we know almost nothing about what these groups might have even been. I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of fascinated, but probably not in the same way he was. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated in the same way that you're fascinated when you pass an accident on the highway. Right. There was a group that I think was founded as early as the late 60s uh, called the Anglo-Saxon Church of Woden uh, that met in a restaurant at a place called Enfield Lock in London. Woden. Oh, I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> and the only thing I know about them is that John Ewell referred to them as, quote, unusually pathetic. Uh, but I actually happen to have, because I sniped this really good eBay auction, uh, a single copy of the newsletter that they put out. And this seems to date actually to the early 70s. This newsletter called Valkyrie uh, that they put out, the Anglo-Saxon Church. By the time this came out, they were actually based in a town called Ipswich. They were outside of London. And from what I can see... It's actually rather a lot like Elsa Christensen's Odinist in that most of it is political. Uh, there's this long uh, – I've got it right here. I'll hold it up to the mic so you can you can see it. It's it, The cover is kind of this like electric green with a uh, winged helmet on the front mm -hmm. and a little border around the sides. And then it's pretty much just like typewritten. It's got a handwritten – is that an address on the front? Um, it's no, it's it's uh, phone numbers. Oh, so uh, we have random phone numbers for Anglo-Saxon Church. Act, well, it's actually the phone numbers of the uh, guy whose estate this was part of. Uh, their Seattle well, phone numbers. One of their members. Yeah, yeah. but um, about half of it seems to be mostly uh, politics. Uh, there's a, a nice poem called "The Val Fathers Return." And in those times of loyalty gone, a clarion call shall be heard. The Valkyries will ride with the rising sun, and the warriors awake with a word. The bell of the church will toll its last, and lost sheep bleat for the fold. Faint hearts afraid of the icy blast, and the thunder will wake to the cold. In vain will the preacher hope guidance to find by praying for help from the east. 
Too late it is realized that nothing can bind the Aesir returned from the feast. And it, there's more, but yeah, we can we're, leave we're it good. at that. And so there's that. There's a lot of politics and there's quotes from A-Rod Mills. Of course. So that seems to be pretty much the only other um, organization at this time that was, you know, quasi-heathen uh, that actually did very much. Uh, the smaller organizations that are talked about that Gibbs Bailey might have known, uh, nobody seems to have much documentation on that I've been able to find. Now, Gibbs Bailey and uh, Yule, when they got things going, they also tie into Elsa Christensen mm-hmm. because she had some, they got their first kind of mailing list of people from her. Mm-hmm. They got these uh, the three subscribers to the Odinists that were in. Uh, the UK, they got from her. Right. I think they got uh, both of them. Memory serves, there were three people, Ewell and Gibbs Bailey and one other. And then there were uh, two more they were able to get from Elsa Christensen. And they figured that five was enough to be going on. Uh, So in 1973, uh, they created the London Odinist Committee for the Restoration of the Odinic Rite. John Gibbs Bailey was more behind the scenes. He was an older man, and his health was apparently not good at this time, so he served as treasurer. John Ewell was the the leader with the more public face on it, and went by the name Stuba. And went by the name Stuba. He was actually lived for a time in a uh, neighborhood uh, called Stepney, and Stepney apparently comes from the Anglo-Saxon Stubenhiv. Which means Stubba's landing place. So so he called himself Stubba. John Gibbs Bailey called himself Hoskuld. And there's still a tradition in the Odinic Rite of people taking Odinic names when they become professed members. Although, as far as I can tell, not everyone does that now. So they published Raven Banner. And it just so happens that because of my mad skills with uh, eBay, I actually have a stack of them. Uh, right here, beginning with number seven, uh, which was published at midwinter 1974. Uh, so it's about eight photocopied pages. It's actually done pretty well. Uh, some nice line illustrations and things like that. And unlike uh, the Odinist, there's a lot more content about... Um, Actual religion? Well, religion and folk practices. Uh, This one has uh, something about mistletoe, and it's got an article about the days of the week, uh, about, you know, Thursday and Friday and Tuesday being named after the old gods. Uh, There's actually a picture in here of uh, Sveinbjörn Bainteinsson, who had founded the Ausatruarfjellagiv, the Ausatru Fellowship in Iceland. And there's a rather excited report about uh, the founding of the Ausatru Fjellagiv. And uh, we're going to have an episode about them coming up soon. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, if you're on our Patreon, okay. you know the details on this. Mm-hmm. There is some uh, political stuff. And a number of the issues that I've got uh, have these write-ups that take pot shots at groups you wouldn't think they'd bother with, like the World Council of Churches, which is this ecumenical, liberal, 
let's let everybody, you know, get together, smile on your brother, try to love one another, uh, liberal, mostly Christian group, which apparently kept doing silly liberal things that the uh, Odinic right people uh, felt obliged to point out. But there is a lot more stuff on actual folk concepts and religion than Elsa Christensen was putting out in The Odinist. Now, Ben, I, I want to pause here for just a second to remind everybody today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible has great offer right now for our listeners. You can get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash heathen history and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a free title and start listening. It's that easy. Just go to audible.com forward slash heathen history. You get started. And if I may make a recommendation, our friend, Don- Dongle McGronin, who um, wrote the Modern Day Havamal, his new Modern Day Havamal is on Audible right now. Mm. And I had the great fortune of getting a preview copy of that. Mm-hmm. And it is quite awesome. Very interesting take on the Havamal. There's also this Ragnar Lothbrook book, Ben. Oh, yeah. I've heard of that. Yeah. I, there seems to be somewhere that Ben... Has a book? You have a book on Audible? Uh, it was some some hack wrote that, but okay. um, but there's lots of lots of Jackson Crawford's books are available mm. in his mythology, as well as if you've never had a chance to read the uh, listen to the Norse mythology by Neil Gaiman, that's on there, and it's wonderful. It's a great audiobook. So go out there, check it out. It is at audibletrial.com forward slash heathen history. You'll get a free audiobook, 30 day free trial, and lots of other great audible exclusive content. Once again, that is audibletrial.com forward slash heathen history. So the Havamal's on Audible. Yes. Can we call it the Havable or the Audible? Uh, you know the what? The Audible Havable? I'll pass that to Donegal. All right. So the Donegal Havamal Audible? Yeah. The Donegal Audible have a book. Okay, I'll stop. I'll stop. So, during that 1970s period when they were still the committee for the... I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to call it the committee. Mm -hmm. Is when they came up with their version of the nine noble virtues, nine charges. Right. I've yet to find out who came up with the one word, nine noble virtues. I know that the Odinic Rite came up with the nine charges... Uh, apparently, uh, John Gibbs Bailey had been an earlier group that had the eight charges, and Ewell was the one that added the last one uh, to bring the number up to up to nine. So, once again, that's a future show, guys. Mm-hmm. Just letting you know that, and that's thanks to the lovely suggestions of our patrons. Thank you. So, um, so I'm sorry, I just got this mental <laughs> image of um, of Odin writing down on slate near. With a couple of tablets saying, I have brought you these 18 charges, these, oops, nine nine charges charges to live by. (laughs) So their their particular version is um, to maintain candor and fidelity and love and devotion to the tried friend. Though he strike me, I will do him no scathe. Never make wrongsome oath, for great and grim is the reward for breaking the plighted troth. This language in this is really kind of something. To deal not hardly with the humble and the lowly. To remember the respect that is due to great age. 
to suffer no evil, to go unremedied, and to fight against the enmities of faith, folk, and family. My foes I will fight in the field, nor will I stay to be burnt in my house. To succor the friendliness, but put fo- no faith in the pledge word of a stranger people. Yeah, it's all a little racist. Mm-hmm. If I hear a fool's word of drunken man, I will strive not for many a grief and the very death grow from out of such things. To give kind heed to dead people, straw dead, sea dead, or sword dead. To abide by the enactments of lawful authority and to bear courage to the discre- decrees of the Norns. All right. So those are actually based on uh, things like the uh, Sigdrifumal mm-hmm. in the Poetic Edda. Some of that is the advice that Sigdrifa, the Valkyrie, uh, gives to the hero uh, Sigurd. I um, actually have a source here. I've got a copy that I've acquired of the Odinic Rights Journal, the OR Briefing. Uh, this is number uh, 211. And in this one, the current leader of the Odinic Rite, Hamgist, uh, wrote an article about John Gibbs Bailey and confirms that Gibbs Bailey had been in an earlier Odinist group. Uh, he'd been apparently an Odinist since the 30s and had been a part of these shadowy groups that we know no- nothing about. And one of them had formulated the eight noble virtues and the eight charges and seems to have been Yule, or Stubba, Stuba, who had uh, added the ninth uh, to make this a um, nine a number that turns up a lot in, um, in the lore. Which, you know, I get it. Nine's mm-hmm. a, a pretty interesting number there. Right. They established contact pretty early on with uh, Steve McNallan. Right. Uh, they, were, uh, they ran ads in uh, the Runestone. And as I mentioned, uh, when McNallan was serving in Germany, uh, he tried to get John Ewell to perform his first marriage to Linda, um, although that didn't work out. And Steve McNallan ended up uh, performing his own marriage. How um, very Quaker of him. I guess so. And they started finding other groups uh, that were in existence in the 70s. And in 1980, they reorganized as just the Odinic Rite. They decided they no longer had to be the Committee for the Restoration of the Odinic Rite because- They'd they'd, restored it? They'd restored it. Okay, good on them. And they joined forces with several other groups that had been around in the 70s. There was one called Saxnot, who's named after a fairly obscure god of the Saxon people, who's mentioned in the oath that the Saxons had to swear at their baptism uh, after Charlemagne uh, had beaten them and forced them to accept Christianity back in the year 700 and don't care. Smack, be a Christian. Smack, be a Christian. Right. So they had they had to forswear Thonar and Woden on Saxnot. And we don't know that much about him except he wasn't Odin and he wasn't uh, Thor gotcha. or Thunar. So he was somebody else. There was another group that joined in 1980 called the Freyhoff. And a third uh, joined in the mid-80s, a uh, small and rather private group uh, called the Heimdall League. So they gathered in a number of these uh, independent groups as part of the Odinic Rite. And in 1988, they gained registered charity status in Britain. Uh, this is similar to 
501c3 in the United States. Right. But apparently it is quite a bit harder to get. It is still pretty hard to get here now. Right, They've changed right. the rules. But yeah, it, it, basically, it would be the equivalent of they become officially registered as a charity. Right. Uh, they were the first polytheistic religious organization, uh, the first pagan religious organization in Britain to gain registered charity status. And there's still not very many. And I will say, as much as I can say this, that, and the other about their theology or politics, that's a huge thing. I mean, to pave that kind of way, you know, the first one is the hardest. In the Mm. United States, that first pagan organization that got that 501c3 was the hardest. Right. You then had a template that other groups could follow to get that recognition. So, Mm -hmm. thanks. I mean, kudos to them for doing that. That is a lot of work. Okay. And let's see. You will step down uh, from the leadership of uh, the Odenic Rite in 1989. Uh, the Odenic Rite had been led by a council called the Court of Gothar, and uh, Ewell had been DCG, uh, the director of the Court of Gothar. The new DCG, uh, who I believe is still in office, uh, was a man by the name of Jeffrey Holly who had been uh, part of the Heimdall League, uh, this independent group uh, that fused with the Odenic Rite in uh, the mid-'80s. Politically, that makes sense. He became the new director, and his Odenic name uh, is Heimgest. And he has led them ever since. And I actually have a copy of uh, an interview that he gave called Interview with a Gothi uh, that was published as a little separate booklet and of course, I'll hold it up to the mic here and riffle the pages. So, Ooh, yeah, wow. so you can tell uh, that it's right here. And the Odenic Rite split in 1991, and neither side would give up the name Odenic Rite. So there was a time when we had the Odenic Rite and the other Odenic Rite. They actually, Britain has this thing similar to a P.O. box called a uh, monomark. Uh, it's basically a mail forwarding name where you can send your postal mail to a London post office box with this monomark and they'll forward it to you from anywhere in the country. Uh, so you can have, you know, it's similar to what, you know, mailboxes, etc. would do. It's a mail forwarding service. Right. And the um, Odinic Rite and the other Odinic Rite took different uh, monomark names uh, Heimgist led the Odinic Rite Runic, and the other Odinic Rite was the Odinic Rite Edda, uh, led by a man named Ralph Harrison, whose Odinic name uh, is Ingvar. And the Odinic Rite Edda uh, was the one that actually kept the legal status of registered charity. Uh, the Odinic Rite Edda uh, eventually changed their name after a few years to the Odinist Fellowship, which doesn't really help because they're not the same as the Odinist fellowship that Elsa Christensen led. So they went from being the other Odinic Rite to the other Odinist fellowship. Whatever they call themselves, they've actually become active. Uh, They have a temple in uh, the town of Newark on Trent. Uh, They acquired a historic building in 2014, and they've refurbished it as as a temple. And they've been... They've got a web presence. Uh, they're fairly active. I don't know very much about them, but uh, they're certainly still there. Stubba actually went with the Odinic Rite Edda uh, for a few years and then evidently had a change of heart 
and rejoined the Odinic Rite Runic, which has maintained the name of the Odinic Rite. Now, I've got an interview here for, with uh, Freya Aswan about the Odinic Rite split, the initial split. Mm-hmm. And it has here that, according to her, uh, she's being interviewed by Vortru, and the, the author says, why did the Odinic Rite split into two fairly recently? This is a quote from Frey Oswin. There was an argument about the Book of Bloats, who had written it, who put it out. I wasn't involved in that argument. My position, again, is that the leader of one faction of the Odenicrite Stuba professed me, and as such, I owe him. I have a bond of blood with him. But I am the one who the leader of the other faction – wait. But I am the one who professed Hymus, the leader of the other faction – and of the Odinic Rite, so I owe him equally allegiance and blood brotherhood, so I will not take sides on this argument. And mm-hmm. you know, one one group published the Book of Bloats and another the other published the Book of Blotar. And off the bat I don't remember which one uh published which. And also apparently at this time that this interview was published, the Odinic Rite had taken up firewalking. Ah. I, I did not know, um, and this was published in 1993. Mm-hmm. The interview was on the 12th of March, 1993. So, yes, at, at one point, the Odenic Rite had taken up firewalking, mm-hmm. according to this interview. Nice little, little piece of information there. Mm-hmm. They'd also been holding ceremonies at an um, ancient monument in uh, the south of England called the White Horse Stone, mm-hmm. uh, which allegedly is where the first... Anglo-Saxons came to England under the leadership of Hengist and Horsa, and they've continued to hold ceremonies at uh, the White Horse Stone and at other uh, ancient monuments in Britain that they feel have some connection to the uh, the pre-Christian Anglo-Saxons. So they'd split in 1991. They'd finally come back together, and uh, Ewell survived for uh, several years after that. He's finally uh, deceased. And Hengist has continued to uh, to lead the Odenic Rite as director of the court of Gothar. Unfortunately, I don't know a lot about the history of the Odenic Rite after that because they tend to play their cards rather close to their vest. Uh, the Troth, the Ausatru Alliance, and more recently the AFA – make uh, back issues of their journals uh, widely available, Iduna, Vortru, and the Runestone, uh, the Odinic Rite generally doesn't. For quite some time, they put out a newsletter called OR Briefing, and this, I think, has grown to be uh, their standard journal. I've got this uh, copy of one that's about 10 years old. Uh, for a time when OR Briefing was just a small newsletter, they did put out an annual called the North Wind, and I've got a copy of the 1992 edition, uh, and I'm ruffling the pages into the mic uh, so you can see that I've actually got it yes. because you know I am an eBay master, or would be if I had more money, and it's not grossly different in overall format from Iduna or any other... I mean, since it's an annual, it's big. It's uh, over 100 pages. Uh, But there's poetry, there's short stories, there's scholarship, there's art. There's an article by uh, somebody named uh, Paul Eric Filsunu, who I mostly know as someone who wanted to replace English 
with a sort of common Nordic uh, dialect called Amerisk. And he actually writes a um, poem in Amerisk called uh, Harkaula, uh, which is an invocation that I probably can't pronounce properly. Part of it goes, Harkaula raurav wordcraft at livskjalf og harhola, Harkaula bivath mjölnir ufur jotenheime faula, Harkaula lude gauð þurkvalde lunde lufta, Rekende Thurk Risklan till Freer och Elfen Könne. Okay then. Yes, well. So uh, this is what they were doing in the 90s. Um, I want to go back just a second mm-hmm. because we talked about uh, in that interview with Frey Aswin, there was this statement of this person professed me and I profess this person. Mm-hmm. I want to explain what that is because it is something that is very unique to the Odenic Rite. Mm hmm. And I I think that's kind of interesting. I'm going by what their words here, but essentially a ceremony of profession confirms before the gods and men a person's restoration to their true indigenous faith and their dedication to the rite. They become full members of the Odenic rite, Odin's holy nation. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of skip through some things. Basically, you have to be a member for a full year. You have to have a existing professed member sponsor you. You have to show an active commitment to the advance of advancement of Odinism in the OR. You have to find not only a professed member to sponsor you, but also a professed member to perform a different professed member to do the right. Uh, you have to fill out an application that has to be approved by the court of Gother. You have to make your own torque, which is invested during the ritual. Mm-hmm. A torque, be it said, T-O- R.C. If it was a K, it would be Peter Tork, who played in the Monkees. Hey, hey, we're the Odinists. Yeah, something like that. But no, this Tork, T-O-R-C, often means a uh, neck ring. Uh, but in the case of the Odinic Rite, it's um, quite a bit smaller. It's a crescent-shaped ornament uh, made out of sheet metal. I think I've seen some people wear them to fasten cloaks around their, their shoulders. The uh, dis- official description is uh, the torque has evolved into a, a gorget design. It must be made of natural material with metal being the most common, but wood and leather have also been used. So essentially you have to, it's very uh, fraternal in that sense. Mm-hmm. Like you you can't just, it's not like the AFA or the Troth or any of the, most other organizations where you join or you pay a membership or you mm-hmm. Joined a Facebook group. It, it, there's, there was actually some work that went into becoming a member. And that was very, you know, that I think is something that very much differentiates it. Now, one thing they do say is you can't resign. Mm-hmm. Once you have become a member of Odin's holy nation, you're there. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. However, however, yes. once you become professed, you are allowed to use OR after your name. Oh, okay. So, I guess that's a thing. Mm-hmm. And if you're a member of the Court of Gother, you can use CG. Right. And if you're the director, you are DCG. This must be confusing if there's doctors in the Odinic Rite. Doctor, you need to report to the OR. Wait, wait, um, wait am I doing surgery or being well, professed? No. In, in Britain, no, not necessarily, because mm-hmm. they call it A&E there. It, er, oh, I see. Yeah, it, or it would be, the OR would be a specific OR. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't just be an operating room. Right. So, 
Let so that I found that kind of interesting that that's how they did that. They also are pretty against you being a member of the OR and any other organization. Mm-hmm. Once again, and your first loyalty must be to the Odenokrite. Right. And they have some interesting beliefs. Mm-hmm. Ben, you want to talk about that Loki? Yeah, their website uh, has a number of articles on the the gods written by a group that I, I guess is within the Odinic Rite called the Circle of Ostara. And they've written about a guide to the different gods as they see them and as they understand them. And uh, I came across the article that they wrote on Loki. And uh, they do start out by saying that Loki is not the devil, uh, nor is he totally evil. Uh, he is the moving spirit behind our desire to control our environment, uh, behind the drive that is expressed in our folk by the need to exercise their ingenuity. Uh, he's part of the active intelligence of our race. Uh, so he's a giver or an embodiment, I suppose, of creativity and discontent and uh, the desire to change. And originally, he was good. When woman first learned to spin thread and man learned to chip flint, Loki was their inspiration. Probably caused the man to hit himself on the thumb. But anyway, he is the god of material technology, the spirit that lies behind our ingenuity, the god of invention and science. Unfortunately, this was a very good thing in the past, but it's not so good now. Loki inspires us to greater powers of manipulating the substance of this world, and he gains strength in material powers, but loses the love, the compassion that alone can make the use of our technical ability and activity in harmony with nature and the earth. And here we go, that we have allowed ourselves to become enslaved by the monstrous money system is Loki's doing. The powers behind this system have great cunning and tell powerful lies, but their actual creative abilities are very limited. They can take over the technology created by others and use it to great destructive effect, but the ability to build such a technology themselves is lacking. They're not actually saying out loud that Loki delivered humanity into the clutches of the international Jewish conspiracy, but they might as well be. Now, in addition to this, Mm -hmm. they also are anti-vaccine. Right. Uh, There's uh, several articles about vaccines on their uh, on their site, but the original one is vaccination, venom of your your mungander. I can say that. I promise. Your your Yes, your Big ass snake under the ocean. Yes. Okay. So I'm not gonna read the whole thing because it makes my head hurt. But it's 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 basically a combination of a rejection of germ theory, mm-hmm. how the government is coming to like kill your children with vaccines, and um. It's all about control, and they're going to come and – I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of the stuff that I found looking at their website, it's very much like a fundamentalist Christian. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the exact same stuff my Assembly of God cousins say. It, it, it mm-hmm. is. It's just – it's very anti-vaccine, and they're very much against the – you know, and, and this just 
I don't even know, but like here, mm-hmm. it's time to awake fast. We must reject vaccinations and all other polluting attempts to, to dissect us from the multiversal reality. If we vaccinate our children, will we ever be able to truly guarantee our minds are ours ever again? Mm. They're polluting our precious bodily fluids. Pretty much. Right. And, and they're, they buy into basically this idea that it's like a, AIDS is also a hoax. They also mm-hmm. promote that theory. Basically, it, it, there's a lot of conspiracy theories on their website. Right. I, I just now came across an essay on their website. They're upset about ecological devastation. And, you know, frankly, I am too. You know, that's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's realism to point out that we've damaged the environment that we ourselves depend on. But we have those who have been entrusted to guide and lead our nations have betrayed them. They have given permission for our earth to be poisoned. Even our skies they allow to be polluted by the toxic nightmares that are chemtrails. So there's this strain of far-right ecology uh, that the Odinic right, or at least the essays on there, which may or may not be representative of the whole organization, there's this ideology that they tend to buy into and again, some of it, like you know, protecting biodiversity and the environment, I get right behind. As a biologist, I can see uh, the value of what we are losing. But then they go into the chemtrails and the anti-vaccination and finishing up about Loki. Loki is you know, the inspirer of science and technology, but he's lost his love. He's lost his harmony f- with nature. He's running amok, and he was of wonderful benefit to us so long as we held true to the pattern of our racial destiny. Uh, Okay. And many children of this god reveal themselves by truckling to the rulers of the system, by accepting its lies and manipulations, by living for pleasure alone and physical sensation. The hags of women's lib are part of Loki's brood and all the anti-life forces of homosexuality and the touters of abortion. Shout out to my Lokian friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, Sorry. right. <laughs> well, the the controversy over the place of Loki and heathenry, that could be something we ought to do a future show on. Yes. Because it tends to fall uh, pretty well on the left-wing wing, right-wing split within heathenry. People who are folkish tend not to like Loki very much, and people who are inclusive tend to be more okay with Loki. Loki is kind of a proxy for a lot of other issues that play out in heathen politics, and for that matter, in politics at large. You mentioned that concern about chemtrails and vaccination are you know, certainly not unique to the heathen community. They tend to map out you know, in wider politics in the United States on, well, sometimes on the very far left and sometimes on the very far right. But it's one of the like some of the conspiracy theories are interesting because they're one of the ways that like the the hippies and the fundies can come together. Mm-hmm. But now, but just to kind of reiterate here, you know, just the basic thing, they are they call themselves a folkish Odinist society. Mm-hmm. They are very far right. If you look at their Their website, it's very pro-nuclear family, pro-men and women in their own roles. Uh, There's discussion about things 
about use of things like the Black Sun. Mm-hmm. Um, they're unapologetically far to the right, and I would I would say racist because mm-hmm. I I am going to call a spade a spade. If you're a folkish, you're if you're folkish. To the true definition of folkish, you're a racist. Mm-hmm. Sorry, guys. I, I can't be – I'm not going to, like, tiptoe around that. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Anyway, yeah, at the end of uh, this booklet I have by Hamgest, uh, the interview with a Gothi, which came out in early 2000 and something. I don't, I don't think this has a date on it. We shall continue as the prime force in the world of form – in the new awakening of the Odin consciousness. What I've seen of their writing is very much about this Odin consciousness that they're trying to achieve and trying to tap into and make available, whether by us directly or via small groups influenced by us. Through us, the manifestation of the gods and goddesses upon Midgarth shall grow stronger. As this grows stronger, so will we, and so on in a spiral. In the past golden age, the high ones walked with their folk, and so shall again. We will aid the evolution of a higher state to come. We shall hold through the great Ragnarok the memory and light of Odinism to help the new golden age. The golden ruins shall be restored for gods and men. So there's a metaphysical aspect uh, to the Odinic rite, trying to increase Odinic consciousness. And that book was published in 1996. 96, okay. There is a more recent interview with him on YouTube that's broken up into at least four. I only watched the first four parts. That's all I could do. I'm sorry, guys. That was done in 2006 that you Mm -hmm. can watch. If you just search interview with a Gothi, it's the first thing that pops up. And so there's there's more insight if you want to kind of get a little more idea into their beliefs. But it's pretty obvious to me. Mm -hmm. But. So that was the Odinic Rite. Right. Not to be confused with the other Odinic Rite, which we'll do in the future. Mm-hmm. And we have more great stuff. We're going to start getting into romanticism. Mm-hmm. And so that's exciting. Oh, I, th- I think the next one of these we're going to do, we're actually going to go back to the Protestant Reformation. What does that have to do with anything, Wagner? Well, just wait and you'll see. All right. So if you want to support us, we have a Patreon. You can go and get sneak peeks, special gifts, access to – we have an exclusive Heathen History Facebook group for patrons. They can ask questions. And you can do that at patreon.com forward slash heathenhistory. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Heathen History or Facebook at facebook.com slash Heathen History uh, for updates. And as always, our show notes and sources are available on our website, heathenhistory.com. And our theme music is Happy Viking. It's by Roller Music. And our show is edited by Hands on Keyboard. She's over on Fiverr. Check her out if you need editing. For Heathen History Podcast, I'm Lauren. And I'm Ben. Wassail, y'all. Wassail, y'all.